The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In March 2021, London, along with the rest of England, was under a full national lockdown in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. An unusual mix of boredom, fear, and frustration permeated the country as it grappled with the ever-changing rules and restrictions. The entire world, it seemed, was just waiting for things to go back to normal. But there was one man who didn't see these once-in-a-lifetime circumstances as an obstacle. Instead, he signed them, a depraved opportunity to turn lockdown London into his own personal hunting ground. Join me now as we take a look into the sudden disappearance of 33-year-old Sarah Everard. You'll learn how a predator used his position of authority as camouflage and as a weapon. A true wolf in sheep's clothing who shattered the public's trust in its institutions at a time when the country could least afford it. March 3, 2021 was a textbook early spring day in the heart of London. Chilly, foggy, rainy, then heavy rain, and then back to fog again. The kind of weather that makes us want to stay inside our cozy homes. But March 2021 itself was by no means a textbook spring for the city, the country, or the world. England itself was in the middle of its third full-scale national lockdown since the COVID-19 pandemic had begun a year earlier. And like many countries around the world, the British government's response to the global pandemic had been erratic to say the least. The restrictions, regulations, and advice were constantly changing seemingly from week to week. Lockdowns had been implemented, relaxed, and then reimposed again. A three-tier alert system created only to be replaced by a four-tier system. Guidelines for bubbles, the rule of six, and other newly minted phrases were coined to limit social gatherings. By that time, most Londoners were tired of staying indoors, even with the horrible weather. One of those Londoners was 33-year-old marketing executive Sarah Everard. Sarah was living by herself in an apartment in Brixton, on the south side of London. Known as a hotspot among young professionals, Brixton offers relatively cheap housing, along with vibrant markets and a bustling restaurant and bar scene. For the past 13 years, Sarah thrived working in the marketing industry, making her way up the corporate ladder while creating quite a name for herself. In fact, just four weeks prior, she'd accepted a new position with the London-based digital marketing agency, Flipside Digital Marketing. According to friends, Sarah was thrilled about the new job, but like most, was becoming increasingly bored with all the COVID restrictions. 
Sometime around 5 p.m. that night, Sarah left her apartment and went for a walk. Before leaving, she put on her green rain jacket, a white knitted beanie, and her turquoise and orange trainers. Brixton was like a ghost town compared to the bustling metropolis it usually was. Only a smattering of pedestrians roamed the streets, shopping for essentials or getting a daily dose of exercise before heading back inside. But Sarah wasn't just out for some exercise. She was looking for some human contact and walked two and a half miles to have dinner with a friend in the nearby suburb of Clapham. Along the way, she stopped at a supermarket to pick up a bottle of wine for the occasion. After dinner, around 9 p.m., Sarah left her friend's home through the back gate, beginning the 50-minute walk back to her home. Sarah was intelligent and savvy, known to be extremely streetwise walking alone in the area, a walk she'd made countless times before. Sarah chatted with her boyfriend Josh on the phone for about 15 minutes, making plans to see each other the following day. It would be the last time anyone would hear from her. The friend Sarah had had dinner with expected to get a text message from Sarah, letting her know when she returned home safely, but the text never came. Her friend chalked it up to a few possible reasons. Maybe Sarah's phone had died, or maybe she'd just forgotten. Although her friend was concerned, the alarm wasn't raised. It was the first in a series of red flags that was about to come. The following morning, Sarah missed a scheduled appointment with a client for Flipside, the second red flag. Missing a meeting was incredibly out of character for a consummate professional like Sarah, a rising star in the marketing industry who was certainly trying to make the best first impression in her first month at a new job. Throughout the day, several of Sarah's friends became worried when no one could seem to get in touch with her. Finally, when Sarah failed to meet up with her boyfriend later that day, it was the final red flag. And at around 8 p.m. on March 4th, Sarah was reported missing to police. It didn't take long for law enforcement to realize Sarah's situation was dire, and on March 5th, the case was handed over to the Metropolitan Specialist Crime Command Unit. As the search for Sarah intensified, hordes of volunteers with London's search and rescue meticulously searched the routes she may have taken. Over the next few days, hundreds of phone calls poured into Scotland Yard's switchboards, while hundreds more volunteers joined the search. As sniffer dogs searched buses, police divers were deployed to the ponds and waterways near Clapham. When a person vanishes into thin air, missing persons investigations start out largely as an exercise of ruling out possibilities, with all possibilities on the table, from the easily explainable and hopeful to the unthinkable and darkest worst-case scenarios. As the investigation continued, police made an appeal to the public, asking for anyone to send in any camera footage from the time and locations Sarah may have been that night. Once the request was made, the footage came flooding in. Dash cams from taxis, buses, home security cameras, along with CCTV from businesses in the area. 
As one of the most heavily surveilled cities in the entire world, London has an estimated one security camera for every 14 residents. Astonishingly, the average person can expect to be captured by CCTV cameras approximately 300 times each day. After more than 1,800 hours of security footage was handed over to police, a team of officers began working fervently around the clock to analyze it all. It was a Herculean task, but the grainy, dark, and often out-of-focus footage slowly made it possible for officers to stitch together Sarah's movements that night, eventually being able to pinpoint the exact location she disappeared. A section of Pointers Road, about halfway between her home and her friend's apartment. That meant whatever happened to Sarah must have occurred in plain view, along a well-lit public road. But how could someone disappear in plain sight without anyone noticing? It would be the footage from a city bus that would finally give investigators the break they've been desperately searching for. As the bus traveled down Pointers Road, it happened to catch Sarah standing on the sidewalk, identifiable by her green jacket and knitted beanie. But there was someone else with her. It seemed she was interacting with a man who appeared to be holding something up for her to look at. Just beyond the pair sat a white, unmarked Vauxhall Astra parked along the side of the road with its hazard lights on. Three minutes later, another bus passed by, capturing the Vauxhall again. But this time, the footage was clear enough to read the car's license plate. At that moment... Whoever was driving the white Vauxhall had now become detective's prime suspect and they needed to find out who it was. Nothing could have prepared them for what they were about to discover after running the plate number. The Vauxhall was rented, hired out by one of their own, police constable Wayne Cousins. It's difficult to imagine the shock detectives felt when they learned that a serving police officer had become their prime suspect in a missing persons case. And not just any missing persons case, a case that everyone in England was following. Also by that time, Sarah's disappearance was even making international headlines, highlighting the never-ending issue of women's safety around the world. To think a police officer might possibly be behind her disappearance was almost unthinkable. On March 9th, detectives from the Metropolitan Police traveled 80 miles to Wayne Cousins' home in the town of Deal on England's southeast coast. As three detectives entered the home, a force of nearly 20 officers surrounded it making sure their prime suspect couldn't make a run for it. It's important to keep in mind that by this point, police were operating under the presumption that Sarah Everard was still alive, a mindset absolutely imperative in a missing persons investigation. And although the officers were certain Wayne could have valuable information regarding Sarah's whereabouts, they were still holding out hope he'd be able to lead them to her alive. When detectives entered Wayne's home, they immediately handcuffed him and told him he was being arrested under suspicion of kidnapping. But when they sat him down and began asking him about Sarah, he started out by saying he'd never met her 
He'd only seen photos of her on the news. Do you know Sarah? I don't know. Okay. Sarah went missing on Wednesday and her family are really worried about her. Do you know where Sarah is? No. Do you know anything about what happened to her? I know that she went missing up in um, London somewhere about a week ago or so. Just from what I've got on the news. As a police officer, Wayne certainly knew the lines of inquiry detectives would use on him. He knew that by arresting him, they'd have to have something on him. Perhaps by chance, or perhaps because he actually suspected detectives were closing in on him, just 40 minutes before they arrived at his door, Wayne completely erased his cell phone data by using a factory reset. Shortly into his interview, you can hear Wayne trying to get the detective to reveal what evidence they'd found against him. Have you ever personally met her? No, not personal man. You had any interactions with her at all? Uh, why, 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 why would I have personal interactions with her? Sat in handcuffs and so you must have something to say that I, I know her. You've been arrested on suspicion of kidnap and we believe that you've been involved in her disappearance and taking her away from her family. Okay. So we are trying to find her. Our job, our primary job here is to find her and to try and find her at the station work. Okay. Now, we believe if you know something about where she is, and that's why we're here, to look for her and to try and find her. When Wayne realized the detective wasn't going to give up any details, the interview took a dramatic turn. The words that came out of Wayne's mouth next were unbelievable. Okay, um, well... I am in financial and I've been lent on by, I don't know who they are, they're a gang and they told me why I need to go and pick up girls and get them to them. I said, what's happening? And it then came through that they're going to harm my family, take them away. But at that point, I had no option. I was told a place to... Um, Take her. That's it. That's all. That is all I know. Wayne was admitting to kidnapping Sarah, handing her over to a mysterious gang of Eastern European human traffickers he owed money to for using their call girls. If what he was saying happened to be true, and that's a big if, it would mean there was a possibility Sarah was still alive somewhere. So the detective began asking Wayne to tell them everything he knew about the Balkan gang. Tell me about them. I need to find them. Tell me everything you know. That okay. That there them. was a white sprinter van. They was between sort of Lennon, Mainstone area that I've got to off. I still don't know. I, I, I don't know. They, they just, I, I just parked my car up and then the van come up behind me, flashed me and they all jumped out and then they, they, they took this girl. They said, you've done good. And they threatened to take my family away from me. So at that point, I'm, I'm doing what I can to protect my family. That's it. So all I know is that it was a roundabout. We could try there now, I could show you. So I'm here, I'm off work with stress because I'm here to protect my family. I want to be here 24 seven for my family. They come from my family. I've got no choice. When the detective asked Wayne how the gang had contacted him and how he had contacted them, 
he immediately changed the subject. Listen closely to how Wayne attempts to dodge the direct question a second time. How is it they've been in contact with you to make these threats? They just tell me, be here, be here. Okay, so I turned up. Um, I've got no mobile number and they have got my mobile number. They're obviously outside watching, following. You can almost hear the gears turning in Wayne's head as questions were being fired at him, and he continues giving answers in a roundabout way. How are they telling you to be there? So they'll be outside here? Yeah. And then they'll say, right, you're going to be in Folkestone at this time, or you're going to be in Ashford at this time. That's it. There's no links, no telephone numbers. I'm completely on my own, but at the same time being threatened. Perhaps the most telling line of the interview is when Wayne declares there were no links to the so-called Eastern European gang of human traffickers. In essence, he was feeding the detectives this dramatic story that at the same time he declares, basically, there's no way for them to verify it, even if it was true. When it became clear Wayne wasn't going to tell them exactly where Sarah was, Detectives led him away in handcuffs from his home. It was now March 9th, four days since Sarah was first reported missing. News of Wayne's arrest sent shockwaves throughout the country and with nothing else to go on but Wayne's elaborate story, detectives began pouring over hundreds of hours of surveillance footage again, attempting to verify it but they couldn't find any evidence to corroborate a single detail of his account. Why? Because it was all lies. A terrible fact that would be realized less than 24 hours later. About 60 miles southeast of London, in the county of Kent, sits a 200-acre plot of privately owned woodland named Hodeswood. It's described as a hidden gem, a nature reserve, safely tucked away from the encroaching urbanization of the countryside. The perfect place to get away from it all. A haven surrounded by massive trees, abundant bird life, and even a horde of highland cattle. This is where Wayne Cousins and his wife Elena had purchased a small patch of land back in 2019 meant as a private getaway to take their two children on outings. But the scene at Hodeswood on March 10th, 2021, was the farthest thing imaginable from a wholesome family outing. Using cell phone analysis, police discovered Wayne had spent a considerable amount of time in the wooded area in the hours and days following Sarah's abduction. Not long after beginning the search of the area, it became abundantly clear that the kidnapping wasn't the only or worst crime Wayne was guilty of. Beneath the surface of a small pond, less than a hundred meters away from Wayne's property, the remains of Sarah Everard were discovered. On March 11th, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick held a press conference with an update. As you are aware, a man has been arrested on suspicion of Sarah's murder. This evening, detectives and search teams investigating Sarah's disappearance 
have found very sadly what appears to be human remains. Although it would take some time for forensics to fully confirm the identity of the remains, everyone listening knew the police had to be confident to make a public statement. Usually in these types of scenarios, after a suspect is arrested, a police commissioner would thank all the officers for their stellar work on the case while comforting the public. Instead, this press conference would take a dark turn when Cressida addressed the elephant in the room that the suspect was one of their own. The news today that it was a Metropolitan Police officer who was arrested on suspicion of Sarah's murder has sent shockwaves and anger through the public and through the Met. I speak on behalf of all my colleagues when I say that we are utterly appalled at this dreadful, dreadful news. Our job is to patrol the streets and to protect people. Sarah's disappearance in these awful and wicked circumstances, I know, are every family's worst nightmare. In the following days, as more and more details came to light about what had happened to Sarah the night she went missing, more details also began to emerge about who Wayne Cousins was, what he'd done in the past, and all the red flags the Metropolitan Police had ignored along the way. Each new detail was another dagger to the heart of the public trust in police. In the meantime, Wayne refused to say anything about what he'd done or why, only offering no comment. And for that exact reason, detectives had to rely heavily on whatever else they could gather to figure out what had happened the night Wayne kidnapped Sarah. After meticulously piecing together the footage they'd collected, along with the cell phone records, personnel records, forensics, accounts from eyewitnesses and interviews with Wayne's colleagues and family, a portrait of Wayne began to emerge, that of a cold, calculating, premeditated murderer, an officer who used the country's COVID restrictions as the perfect cloak to carry out a horrific crime in plain view. The only thing he hadn't planned to the last detail was who his victim would be. Born in 1972, Wayne Cousins grew up in Dover and was the oldest of two younger brothers. By all accounts, he had a close relationship with his parents, although nothing can be confirmed. As he grew older, Wayne began working at the family's auto body shop as a mechanic, less than a mile from the town's famous White Cliffs. In 2002, at the age of 30, Wayne joined the Kent Special Constabulary, a group of volunteer police officers tasked with assisting local police, the first step for many interested in pursuing a career in law enforcement. Using his volunteer experience, in 2011, Wayne joined the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, the special police force in charge of providing security for all non-military nuclear sites in the UK. As a member of the CNC, Wayne would have underwent training to become an authorized firearms officer. To listeners outside of the UK, it may be surprising to learn that in the UK, only 5% of all law enforcement officers are authorized to carry firearms. 
as one of the only several countries around the world where police don't generally carry guns, including Ireland, Norway, Iceland, and New Zealand. Authorized firearm officers are expected to be better trained, more heavily vetted, and beyond reproach. But even while Wayne was employed by the CNC, red flags began popping up, although infuriatingly, nothing was ever done about them. His co-workers at the CNC had a nickname for him. They called him the Rapist because of how uncomfortable he made his female colleagues feel. In 2015, a police report was filed with the Kent Police about a man driving around town naked from the waist down. After police discovered the vehicle was owned by Wayne, no further actions were taken. It's since been speculated that the failure to properly investigate Wayne's act of indecent exposure was a case of police officers closing ranks and turning a blind eye to protect one of their own. This has also been offered as an explanation as to why none of his colleagues who nicknamed Wayne the Rapist ever filed an official report. Throughout the world, whenever we see videos or hear stories of police officers abusing their positions, the same phrase is always used. It's just one bad apple. But when we take a deeper look at the example of Wayne Cousins, calling him a bad apple means that the good apples were the ones who failed to investigate him the ones who nicknamed him the rapist. To family and neighbors, Wayne was a happily married family man with two children. But Wayne was leading a double life. He had a penchant for hiring sex workers and had created a string of fake dating profiles where he listed himself as single. But Wayne's tendency to hire sex workers was just one more thing his colleagues kept hidden from the rest of the world. On one occasion, his co-workers had to call him down to the station after a sex worker showed up demanding payment from him. In 2018, Wayne joined the Metropolitan Police in Greater London and in 2020 was assigned to the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command where he provided security primarily for foreign embassies. In February 2021, just three weeks before he kidnapped Sarah, Wayne pulled into a McDonald's drive-thru, not wearing any pants, clearly visible to the drive-thru teller. When the employee reported the incident, she claimed he'd done it several times before. But again, for unknown reasons, the incident wasn't thoroughly investigated. At the time of his last drive-thru exposure, Wayne was already hatching a plan to kidnap rape and murder someone. It's beyond infuriating to think what could have been prevented if the indecent exposure report had been fully investigated. Several times throughout February, Wayne drove the route between his home in Deal, London, and Toadswood, timing his plan out to the minute. On February 10th, he purchased a handcuff key off Amazon, and on February 28th, he ordered a roll of self-adhesive carpet protector. Also that same day, Wayne called Enterprise Rent-A-Car and booked a white Vauxhall Astra. On March 3rd, Wayne lied to his wife, telling her he'd been called into work for an overnight shift, something that wasn't terribly unusual. So around 5 p.m., Wayne left home and went to Dover 
to pick up the rental car. 80 miles away in Brixton, Sarah Everard had just stepped out of her apartment to go visit her friend for dinner. Security footage revealed that Wayne drove around London for a couple of hours, hunting for an unsuspecting victim. And just after 9.30 p.m., he found one, Sarah. After seeing Sarah walking alone, Wayne pulled over to the side of the road, turning on his hazard lights, and stepped out of the vehicle. He then presented himself to Sarah as an undercover police officer. Although he was in plain clothes, he was wearing his police belt. As he approached Sarah, he pulled out his warrant card and showed her his police identification. It's this precise moment that was captured by the city bus camera. Although Wayne primarily worked as security for embassies, over the past year, he'd also participated in several COVID patrols, which meant he knew the exact language and spiel to use when effecting an arrest for breaching COVID restrictions. Using this experience and a set of handcuffs, Wayne arrested Sarah for violating COVID laws and placed her in his rental. Two witnesses driving by saw the confrontation as it was occurring, but they didn't think much of it. Just an undercover cop arresting someone who must have been doing something wrong. Even the most streetwise person would have never expected a police officer, a real police officer with a belt and badge, would use his position of authority to do what Wayne was about to do. It's horrifying to think what must have been going through Sarah's mind as she traveled in the back of that car, as they passed by the nearest police station and then the next, and just kept on driving. It wouldn't take long for Sarah to realize that something was very wrong. Wayne drove Sarah all the way back to Dover, where he transferred her from his rental into his own personal vehicle at 11.30 p.m. After that moment, police can only surmise exactly what had happened. But at some point after leaving Dover, Wayne drove into the countryside, where he raped and murdered Sarah Everhart, strangling her with his police belt. A tool entrusted to him to protect the people. Women like Sarah, walking the streets of London alone that night. Instead, in that moment, he took her life and stripped the world from everything beautiful she had to offer. From her family, her friends, and anyone who ever came to know and love her. And without a second thought, for the tidal wave of mass devastation he'd inflict on all who loved her dearly. Sarah's murderer set about disposing of her like trash, with absolutely no regard for the loved ones who'd be desperately searching for her, people who'd be shattered to never see her precious face again, because that didn't concern him in that moment. What concerned him most was making sure no one would ever find out about his abhorrent secret, the sickening truth about what he'd done. Security footage again captured Wayne around 2.30 a.m. buying food at a gas station in Dover. It's believed that he headed to Hodeswood, where he planned to hide Sarah's body. At 8.30 in the morning, Wayne returned his rental to Enterprise and again drove off in his own vehicle stopping in the town of Sandwich to throw Sarah's cell phone into a river. 
Wing timed his entire route perfectly, so when he showed back up at his home in the morning, no one would suspect a thing. It was the same time he'd always came home after working a night shift. The following day, on March 5th, Wayne stopped at a service station and filled a plastic jerry can with five liters of gasoline. He then drove back to Hoadswood, where he'd hidden Sarah's body. There, Wayne placed Sarah's body inside an abandoned refrigerator. Next, he poured gasoline all over her, setting the accelerant ablaze. Several hours later, Wayne returned to the site with a pair of builder's bags, the kind used on construction sites to remove rubble. He then placed Sarah's charred body into the bags and threw them into a pond. Only two days later, on March 7th, Wayne took his wife and his two children on a family outing to Hodeswood and watched as his children played near both the refrigerator and the pond. What could have possibly possessed him to take his wife and children to the scene of that horrific crime? Was he using his family as guinea pigs to see if they'd notice anything out of the ordinary? Or was it just some kind of power move an overconfident psychopath would pull? Finding a sixth sense of satisfaction in the act itself, hiding his darkest secret right under the noses of those closest to him. The answer to that question is likely too dark for any of us to fathom. The next day, March 8th, was International Women's Day. In the morning, Wing called the Metropolitan Police, but he didn't call to confess. Instead, he was calling in sick for the day, citing stress as an excuse. And while the rest of his police colleagues ramped up their efforts to solve the mystery of what had happened to Sarah Everard, Wayne stayed at home, hoping that Hodeswood and Sarah's watery grave would keep his horrible secret safe. He was arrested the very next day. English TV presenter Emma Kenny describes Sarah as the perfect English rose the type of woman whose smile exuded kindness and generosity of spirit. She was, in effect, the British everywoman. With photos of her face appearing on every newspaper and TV channel, it was impossible for English women to see her and not think, that could have been me. It was proof that no woman was truly safe when men like Wayne Cousins were on the streets. It's hard to overestimate the sheer amount of outcry and indignation when the public learned that Sarah's rapist and murderer had been employed, enabled, and possibly even covered up for by his fellow police officers. For the Metropolitan Police, it wasn't just a public relations nightmare. It was an apocalypse. On Saturday, March 13th, Women around England organized massive public vigils to be held in remembrance of Sarah and to protest violence against women. Although the government officials attempted to stop the vigils due to COVID restrictions, many of them went on regardless. The largest gathering occurred in Clapham Common, the park Sarah most likely walked through on her way home before being kidnapped. Thousands of mourners arrived to pay their respects and voice their frustrations. And soon, a large contingent of police officers showed up as well. But they weren't there to stand in solidarity 
with the women demanding an end to male violence. They were there to break up the gathering. When the crowd began to protest, police began arresting women and taking them away, trampling the flowers and candles mourners had laid out in Sarah's memory. From a public relations point of view, things only got worse from there. On its own website, the Metropolitan Police issued what could only be categorized as one of the most utterly tone-deaf statements ever made by a city's police. For women who felt unsafe being arrested by a single police officer, the police suggested the following options. Ask the officer where his colleagues are, shout out to a passerby, run away to a nearby house and knock on the door, wave down a passing bus, call 999. Not only were the Metropolitan Police suggesting women effectively commit the crime of resisting arrest, they were also failing to miss the central points. The never-ending issue of violence against women, the fact that it shouldn't be the public's job to protect themselves from police, and the extreme vulnerability of the entire population when police failed to hold themselves accountable. But the victim blaming didn't stop there. North Yorkshire Police Commissioner Philip Ballot went on BBC Radio and told the host that women, first of all, need to be streetwise about when they can be arrested and when they can't be arrested. She should have never been arrested and submitted to that. The commissioner resigned not long after the insensitive and frankly ridiculous comments were made. Wayne Cousins has continued to remain tight-lipped about his motivations or any details regarding the night he murdered Sarah, and because the evidence against him was so overwhelming, he pled guilty to kidnapping on June 8th, and on July 9th, pled guilty to murder. The guilty pleas spared Sarah's family the whole ordeal of having to sit through a trial and forced to hear and relive the gruesome details of that night a small silver lining to one of the most disturbing crimes in recent UK history. Despite Wayne's well-publicized crimes and guilty pleas, several of his fellow police officers still wrote positive character references for the judge to consider during sentencing. On September 30th, 2021, Wayne was given a whole life sentence for his crimes. In the UK, it's an extremely rare occurrence for even a murderer to be given a whole life sentence. And currently, there are only 60 criminals in the entire country who are serving them. For comparison, the state of California alone has 700 inmates on death row. The judge's bold decision to go against established sentencing guidelines and put Wayne away for life became the first step in what is sure to be a long road in restoring the public's faith in the system. At sentencing, the judge said, in my judgment, the police are in a unique position, which is essentially different from any other public servants. They have powers of coercion and control that are in an exceptional category. In this country, it is expected that the police will act in the public interest. If that is undermined, one of the enduring safeguards of law and order in this country is inevitably jeopardized. 
In the aftermath of Sarah Everard's murder, people have speculated that if Wayne Cousins and decent exposure incidents had been thoroughly investigated, perhaps Sarah would still be alive. But why exactly? Aren't these types of crimes thoroughly investigated? Here is Dr. Shahom Das to weigh in on that question. He's a forensic psychiatrist consultant who assesses mentally disordered offenders in courts and prisons, as well as secure psychiatric units. What we do know is that he was alleged to have committed indecent exposure in 2015 in Kent. And on top of that, more recently, on two separate occasions, he allegedly drove naked and committed indecent exposure to staff at McDonald's through a drive through And chillingly, this was only days before he captured and killed Sarah Everett. I think it's fair to say that indecent exposure is minimized and dismissed by some and not seen as a serious offense, but it is. It's a crime and it's punishable by up to two years in prison. According to the Office of National Statistics, there were about 10.8 thousand reported cases of this crime in 2020, yet only 600 actually made it to court. So obviously we can see that that's a low conversion rate. So what's the reason for this? Well, I think the public and more importantly, the police sometimes misjudge it as quite a minor crime. There's been lots of stories where women have felt quite traumatized and violated and they've reported this to the police, but their reaction has been that the police have belittled them or tried to make jokes about it. And also it's a bit harder to arrest somebody who's committed this because unlike some other more serious sexual offending, there often isn't any evidence because the perpetrator disappears very quickly. Dr. Shahom Das now breaks down the psychological aspect of indecent exposure and how it can escalate into more serious offenses. To me, this is all about sexual aggression. That's one of the aspects that this type of offense has with more serious sexual offending. As well as sexual aggression, there's also the fact that there's a power dynamic between the perpetrator and the victim. And it's something that's enforced and it's enforced suddenly. So to me, this screams of a lack of empathy and probably more importantly, a lack of consent. The reason why these are dangerous psychological processes is because they absolutely can escalate to more serious offenses if they're not kept in check. So although murder and rape, like what happened to Sarah Everett would be extremely rare, more commonly people who commit indecent exposure will commit other types of misogynistic violence such as domestic abuse or stalking. It's said that around 5 to 10% of flashes escalate their offending into serious sexual crimes. So going back to the case of Wayne Cousins, what really concerns me is that his offences were ignored. They were dismissed by the police. They were not taken seriously. And I think this is very likely related to the fact that he himself is a police officer, so they were just looking out for their own. Apparently, his own service that he worked for, the police service, were not even informed of these allegations. And what's really chilling about this whole situation, in my view, is that if it was taken seriously, he might have been arrested, his work might have been informed, and he might have been forced or pressurized into seeking help. And if he did have this help at an early stage, then either through therapy or maybe just this, the seriousness of the whole situation might have jolted him back into a sense of insight of what he had done. What I'm saying is if he had found the right help at the right time, I think there's a very good chance that Wayne Cousins' offences wouldn't have escalated 
and Sarah Everett might still be alive and with us today. In the recent months since the discovery of Wayne's past, criminologists and psychiatrists have speculated that given the amount of planning Wayne put into Sarah's abduction, rape and murder, even the disposal of her body, that this must have been something he'd done before. Dr. Shahom Das gives his opinion. Personally, I don't necessarily subscribe to this belief. Not all criminals are particularly sloppy. Some are actually quite organized and pre-planned. And so I think the fact that this was so well thought out doesn't necessarily mean he did it before. It could just be that he took extra, extra care to try and plan it out and think about any potential flaws or hurdles in his plan. And we also know that he had researched the area thoroughly, driving between Kent and London. And he also seemed to have been planning this for a long period of time. So days and weeks, as opposed to it being relatively impulsive. So I don't think any of this necessarily indicates that he's done this before. I've certainly assessed people in my career as a forensic psychiatrist who planned out offenses, whether they be sexual or physical violence, in quite great detail, but don't necessarily have a long history of violence. Perhaps the only question that remains is whether or not Wayne Cousins would have murdered again if he hadn't been caught. The kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving police officer is a tragedy beyond measure. The erosion of the public's confidence in police the elevated fear in the heart of every woman who walks alone. The obvious systematic failures that allowed any of it to happen in the first place. Although her story has brought many important and pressing conversations to the forefront of the public consciousness, we cannot forget at the heart of her story is Sarah herself. A brilliant, talented and generous individual. A young woman whose personal character resonates throughout the whole of England, a human being who can never be replaced. The words her mother, Susan Everard, spoke before the court convey the family's unbearable feelings of intense loss. Sarah is gone, and I am heartbroken. She was my precious little girl, our youngest child. The feeling of loss is so great, it is visceral. And with the sorrow comes waves of panic, of not being able to see her again. I can never talk to her, never hold her again, and never more be a part of her life. We kept her dressing gown, it still smells of her, and I hug that instead of her. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Dr. Shaham Das for sharing his insights in this episode. You gotta check out his YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. We'll include a link in our episode notes. And now I would like to introduce the podcast, Defense Diaries. What's up, guys? I'm Bob Mata, a recovering criminal defense attorney turned podcaster, and I host the true crime podcast, Defense Diaries which is a serialized deep dive into some of the most prolific cases in the history 
of criminal jurisprudence. Now, there are deep dive podcasts and there are deep dive podcasts, and we are the latter. And in season one of the Defense Diaries, the Gacy Tapes, we feature 15 hours of never before heard pretrial interviews between Gacy and his lawyer, my dad, intertwined into a mind-blowing narrative, chalk-filled with the interviews of those involved with the case, culminating with the trial of the century. So if you think you know the Gacy case, think again, because we literally changed the narrative of the case that everyone thought that they knew. So give Defense Diaries a listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run